A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of England, episode 99, year one of 100. Last week, we'd got to the point where Edward had suffered something of the fickleness of the goddess Fortuna with his Scottish wars. What had looked like a complete and incontrovertible victory had turned into a hard slog. This week, let's look at how trouble in the north turned into over a 100 years of war across the Channel. But before we get on to that, the main point of today's podcast, I'm going to surprise and delight you all with a look at the administrative setup under Edward and have a quick run over the main offices of state. Partly just because I want to, it's my podcast and I'll bore the life out of you if I want to. Secondly, because there's a slim chance you are wondering how much things have changed. And thirdly, to finish the story of the early and mid-1330s because another point I would like to make about much, if not all, of Edward's first ten years is that really very little happens by way of administrative reform or development. He's interested in war, glory and women with silver chains, really not adjusting the administrative balance and its functions. Once again, war would then prove to be an agent for change. He'd begin to engage with this once he'd ended up needing to squeeze more money out of the state machinery in order to pursue his wars. So let's start with a very brief summary of the main bodies of government at the time. I want you to think about three main groups. Number one, administrative. Number two, financial. And number three, legal. Starting with administration then, the most important department was the Chancery, run by the most important royal minister, the Chancellor. The Chancery was responsible for all the writs and stuff that came out with the King's name, validated by his great seal. Then there was the privy seal. This was a much smaller department, but it dealt specifically with the king's personal wishes under the king's secret seal or signet ring. By the end of the reign also, the king had his own personal secretary, a potentially enormously powerful figure. In the financial area, it's the same as we've discussed before, with the exchequer for the main stuff, wardrobe for the court, and the King's Chamber. The Exchequer has grown, though. There's the Exchequer of Receipt, which organised the collection and expenditure of royal revenue, and the Expenditure of Account, which did the same for the King's royal agents, such as sheriffs. The wardrobe was the King's own thing, organising the expenditure of the royal court, and also used for military expenditure. And then the Privy Chamber was not the managing of the results of the royal restroom, as you might imagine, but in fact managing the king's own personal dosh. So that's administration, financial, and finally, number three was judicial administration. There are two bits of this, the courts of the king's bench and the courts of common pleas. Both heard a wide variety of civil cases, but the king's bench heard criminal cases as well. Each employed about 40 professional lawyers by this time, but keep bearing in mind 
that there's not the same division between the judiciary and administrative functions of government as we'd expect to have these days. When he came to power, as we heard last week, Edward kept on most of the existing people. The only major changes he made were to bring in a new Chancellor, John Stratford, and a Treasurer, William Melton. And in many ways this was a great thing. At a stroke, Edward showed that things had changed, that the brutal politics of father and grandfather was over forever. But the downside slowly began to emerge over the decade, because Edward did not then follow that up by creating his own administration and resolving the old conflicts that had occurred within the machinery of the previous government. He just left it all alone. So, for example... Stratford became involved in a nasty dispute with another royal servant, Adam Orleton, and there was clearly bad blood between the others, such as Bishop Burgish, Geoffrey Scroop, and William Kilsby. These names probably won't mean anything to you at all, but all I'm saying is that there are factions within the government, and Edward hasn't stamped his own mark on things, or intervened to make things work better. And meanwhile, there were frequent personnel changes that stopped any kind of structured and lasting reform. Here's one example. The business of managing the lands that fell into royal hands because of the death of tenants-in-chief, or whatever, called escheats. There was a constant debate as to whether these should be managed by two high-ranking officials or by eight regional officers. And between 1327 and 1341, there are no fewer than five changes in government policy on this matter. So there's no consistency coming through. So although John Stratford is a reasonably constant member of the King's Ministry as Chancellor, even after he becomes Archbishop of Canterbury as it happens, that does not mean a period of reform or even administrative peace. The same sort of leave-well-alone policy characterised his approach with his magnets. He's very clear, as Edward, about the importance of this relationship. We've seen that he acted quickly to make sure that he began to heal divisions, and through his court and external war, he will continue to build a strong relationship and community with his nobility. But in this first decade, he's not great at the harder stuff of calling them to account and controlling what they do. He's no Edward I. A pretty typical example of this is the practice of maintenance. Basically, this just means that a magnate would look after his own people, right or wrong. It's mafiosi stuff, the powerful head of the family protecting his servants, should they fall foul of the law. There are nobles closely connected with Edward, such as John Molins, who had been with him in the tunnel, who viciously and illegally exploited their position of power and influence. Another issue is that the magnates continued to be officially the supervisors of local justices of the peace. So you might remember this issue from before. The question for successive monarchs was, either you keep the local justices separate from the power of the magnates, which means they can end up being ineffective because the magnates just ignore them, or you actively involve the magnates, in which case you're in danger of getting corruption and allowing the magnates too much power. The decision had been that it was better to have the magnates inside the tent rather than outside. The magnates, sadly, often abuse the system routinely to avoid and act above the law. Edward makes some effort to deal with this. In the Parliament of 1331, he drew up a sort of voluntary code of conduct. But in 1334, the same issue is back in Parliament, and again in 1338. 
On the plus side, Edward is keen to heal divisions and give the supporters of previous regimes the chance to prove their loyalty to him. But on the negative side, he's not really prepared to force them to do what he wants to do and to be accountable. While Edward failed in these years to establish his own party and administration, he does establish a relationship which will last throughout his reign and which will form one of the bedrocks of his government. This is with the City of London. The rebellion of Isabella and Mortimer had once again shown just how important the support of London was in political life. The price of their support had been a charter of 1327, which gave London unrivalled autonomy over its own affairs. It only had to return nominal normal taxes to the king and was free from purveyance or prees. It was able to regulate its own internal trade without interference from royal wardens. The relationship between King and London is, in microcosm, a good example about the debate of Edward's reign. Did he gain domestic peace by wantonly giving up royal rights? So in London, on the one hand, Edward upheld this charter that Isabella and Mortimer had agreed with London, which was massively generous, which stuck out in comparison with other town charters like a chapel hat peg. On the other hand, he managed this relationship on the basis of stability, trust and cooperation. And in return, he gained constant support through all the financial pressures of his reign. And it's not that Edward was a complete pushover. In 1351, he made sure that the rule that foreign merchants could trade freely throughout England applied equally to London, which they fought tooth and indeed nail. For my part, the conclusion has to be that it's too easy to see Edward as a pushover. The original charter had been given in 1327 by Isabella. Neither she nor Mortimer could make it work, though. London still supported Lancaster against them. Edward did make it work, and that has to be at least in part because of his skills in managing relationships effectively. Now then, on to the little matter of the Hundred Years' War. The traditional view of the cause of the Hundred Years' War was that basically Edward III wanted it to happen, that the glories of the following decades were the result of unbridled aggression by a warlike king who was just out for a bit of fame and glory and used an absurd and unfounded claim to the French throne as a cynical excuse to do so. Well, as my grandmother would have said, I never did. How on earth did we get to this state of affairs when quite clearly it was a lot more complicated than that at very least and in fact it was French aggression that largely forced Edward into war? The answer might be those Victorian historians but it might also be propaganda. So here I shall follow in Ian Mortimer's approach by talking about the vows of the heron. I've placed a link to the full text of this contemporary piece on the History of England website for your delectation. I would also be delighted to tell you that a group of the most talented Shakespearean actors England has to offer have gathered to deliver the play of the vow of the heron to the History of England listeners. But in fact, it turns out that the most talented Shakespearean actors in England have far better things to do with their time, so instead, I've done it myself, and on odd occasion press-ganged some of the Crowther family to help me out. The noble Count Robert was in London, and he wanted to go falconing, because he thought of the gentle land of glorious France from which he was banished. 
He hunted along the river until he caught a heron. The heron was properly plucked and stuffed, and then it was roasted. The heron was placed between two silver platters. Count Robert took two viola players and a lutinist to accompany them properly. He summoned two maidens, daughters of two marquis. They carried the heron into the vaulted halls, and the two maidens sang as if very accustomed to it. The Count of Artois called out boldly, Clear the way, clear the way, you miserable failures. Let the good people pass who are ruled by love. Here is meat for the valiant, for those who are the subjects of fair, amorous ladies. Lords, I have a heron caught by my falcon. I believe I have caught the most cowardly bird of all birds. Since it is cowardly, it is my intention to give the heron to the most cowardly one who lives or has ever lived. That is Edward Louis, disinherited of the noble land of France, of which he was the rightful heir, but his heart failed him and because of his cowardice he would die without it. So he should vow on the heron and tell us what he thinks. Edward's face reddened, and his heart pounded with anger and resentment. Since coward is thrown up to me, I should defend myself. So I will speak my mind, and if I live long enough I will see my vow realised, or I will die trying to accomplish it. I vow and promise to God in heaven and his sweet mother who nourished him, that before this year is ended, I will defy the king of Saint-Denis. I will fight him, he can be sure of that, even if I have only one man to his ten. Does he believe he can take my land from me? I will make war on him by word and deed. With my oath, I have undertaken this vow. When Robert heard that, he laughed and said to himself, now I have my wish, since on this heron that I caught today a great war will begin. Robert then went to the Earl of Salisbury. He was seated by his mistress, the daughter of the Earl of Derby. Good sir, you who are so bold, in the name of Jesus Christ to whom the world belongs, make a vow of support on our heron without delay, I humbly pray you. Why and how could I put myself at great risk in order to accomplish any vow perfectly? For I serve the most beautiful woman in the world according to what I have, and love instructs me. I devoutly ask the maiden to lend me a finger of her hand and simply place it on my right eye. By my faith, said the maiden, it would be ignoble for a lady who wants to command all the strength of her lover's body to refuse to touch him with one finger. I will lend him two. I agree to do that. The Earl of Derby's daughter immediately placed two fingers on his right eye and firmly closed the eye. I vow and promise to God Almighty and to his sweet mother, resplendent with beauty, that my eye will never be open, for storm or wind, for evil or pain or disaster, and yet I will be in France, where there are good people, and I will set fire everywhere and fight with great force against the army of Philip. Then... The beautiful maiden took away her finger, and the others saw that his eye remained closed. When Robert heard the vow, he was delighted. He took the two platters and raised them. He did not forget the three minstrels. They were leading the two maidens who were singing. Robert knelt before the queen and said he would serve the heron in good time, once she vowed what her heart instructed her. 
I have known for some time that I am pregnant. My body has felt it. It moved in my body only a short while ago, and I vow and promise to God who created me, who was born of the Virgin, whose body remained whole, and who died on the cross, crucified, that my fruit will never leave my body until you have led me to the land over there to accomplish the vow that you vowed. And if it is ready to be born before that time, I will kill myself with a great steel knife. Thus will my soul be lost, and the fruit will perish. When the king heard this, he was very distressed, and said there will be no more vows. The heron was cut up, the queen ate some of it. When that was done, the king made ready, and stocked his ships. The queen went aboard. The king took with him many good knights. He did not stop until he came to Antwerp. When they got there, the lady gave birth. She had a fine and pleasing son. Lionel of Antwerp was the name he received at baptism. Thus did the good lady accomplish her vow. Before the others are kept, many good men will die, and many a good knight will proclaim himself miserable, and many a worthy woman will consider herself wretched. Thus the English court set out across the sea. So there you go. With the help of Henry and Millie and grovelling apologies to Sam, Ollie and Izzy, whose contributions somehow got corrupted. A great loss, I have to tell you, to the dramatic arts. The vows of the heron was taken as relating a real event for quite some time. It is, in fact, a piece of political satire written in the Low Countries in the mid-1340s. It's also deeply pro-French. What sounds like at first glance just a piece of chivalric nonsense, actually paints Edward and his court in a very bad light. There's more than a sniff of a court full of moral depravity. Salisbury's sitting next to his mistress. There are those tempting-sounding women wandering around singing. There's a bored, vain and idle king who goes to war just because he's been goaded. There's the Earl of Salisbury airily declaring that he will burn and destroy the good people of France. There's the Queen, making absurd vows to go to her husband to war. It's not a pretty picture. It's the essence of the case that the French made against Edward, that this is a frivolous warmonger. Well, sacre bleu, and the plume de matante. As I say, it's a lot more complicated than that, and French aggression has got to be part of the story. So first of all, as we've seen, Edward was continually painted into a corner by French support for the Scots, and specifically for King David. At one point, Philip VI tried to present himself as an honest broker offering arbitration, while at the same time trying to raise an army for the Scots. So not that impartial then. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That French aggression also involved violence. The French fleet swept the English Channel, visiting fire and destruction on Southampton and Portsmouth. This was a direct threat also to the emerging English philosophy 
of control of the channel, a doctrine that would, of course, come to be a basic tenet of English foreign and military policy, for pretty obvious reasons. There was rivalry elsewhere, namely in the Low Countries. Philip's victory at Cassel in 1328 had re-established French authority and influence there, but try as he might, Philip couldn't remove English influence completely. The Low Countries were utterly dependent on English wool, their economies were deeply entwined, and Philip felt that constant threat at his back door. Philip was perfectly prepared to be petty. So, in 1336, another diplomatic row blew up over one Robert of Artois, the same Robert of Artois who brought the herons into Edward's court. Philip really had the hump for Robert. Artois is in Flanders, and Artois' grandfather had died fighting on the French side, but despite all that French stuff about no inheritance through the female line, Artois' aunt was preferred to Artois due to his young age. So Artois then spent a considerable amount of time and effort chasing after Philip, trying to prove his claim. And eventually he pushed it too far, using a bunch to forge documents, and was caught with his fingers in the till, as it were. This seems to have irritated Philip beyond all reason. Artois was pursued from place to place until he ended up eventually at the English court. It's a bit difficult really to understand the extent of Philip's implacable hatred of Artois. After all, monks had been forging charters for centuries to half-inch the odd extra bit of meadow here and there. There's also a soupçon of a rumour around poison, so maybe there's some mileage in that to boot. Who cares? Who can tell? And in the words of Christy Moore, anyone for the last jock ice now. But whatever the reason, Philip wanted Artois badly. And when Edward welcomed him to his court, Philip was livid. But principally, of course, there's the little matter of Aquitaine. The King of England's lands on the continent had been a running source since 1066. Very few French kings were able to live easily with such a powerful Duke of Aquitaine and the friction was constant both ways. And the French use of the laws of feudalism was also constant, such as under Edward II, when King Charles had confiscated the duchy before extorting 60,000 quid as an inheritance due and whipping away the Agenais. Time and again, we've seen the French king play the overlord card, fermenting rebellion and unrest in Gascony by allowing Gascon nobles to appeal to the King of France for justice over the head of the Duke of Gascony. There's no getting away from it. The French kings wanted the English off the continent. The evidence is that Edward constantly tried the diplomatic route all the way through the decade, including dutifully doing his homage like a good boy. It was Philip who had no desire to negotiate. This remained true right to the very end when in 1337 Edward sent a group to France to keep the diplomatic conversation going. The group was refused admittance, French delegates didn't turn up, so fair dues. Edward's lot spent the time tapping up potential allies instead. Now, stop me anyone who thinks I am potty enough to think that Edward was a gentle, peace-loving soul who was forced into war kicking and screaming against his will and wished only to stay at home reading love poetry to Pippa and holding her skein of wool while she knitted him jumpers. Nope, this would be an exaggeration, and exaggeration of the most vile sort. I have no desire whatsoever to whitewash Edward. For example, there's considerable evidence that in 1336 Edward was raising money to make sure he had a war chest. The point I'm trying to make 
is that there were many reasons why Edward was driven to war, and that Philip was actually more aggressive than was Edward. But, before we get to the big moment, the start of the war, we should talk a bit more about the Parliament of March 1337, because it was a humdinger, for two main reasons. The first is one of the reasons why our Ladybird book called Edward the Father of English Commerce. It began a change in the relationship between king and merchant that would be a feature of Edward III's reign. What Edward did in terms of individual actions had been done before by his grandfather, Edward I, but only as one-offs. Edward III uses his ideas as a matter of policy. And being ever so slightly cumbersome, what actually happens in this parliament is that an embargo is declared on the export of all unworked wool to Flanders. Now, this sounds more than a little potty, doesn't it? After all, surely this is where all England's wealth is. If we turn off the tap of English wool exports, we will surely turn off the flow of money and cause economic chaos. Well, not the way Edward figured it. As far as he saw it, Flanders was now in the sphere of influence of the King of France, after Philip's victory at Cassel and the reinstatement of the Count of Flanders over the heads of the Hoi Polloi. So withdrawing the supply of wool was one very good way of putting pressure on them to come back to the English fold. I suppose we could call this mercantilism, the use of trade as one of the tools of war. And of course there are other markets, Brabant, Northern Italy, so it's not as though no one's selling wool anymore to anyone. But the key thing was at the same time, Edward published a sumptuary law. Now, I've talked about sumptuary laws in casual conversation in the local before now, as I'm sure we all have, and now I think it would be a good time to own up to the fact that I have absolutely no idea what sumptuary means. So I looked it up, and it means regulating or limiting personal expenditures. You lot probably knew that already, but I didn't. We will have some fun, I suspect, with sumptuary laws later in the century when they get quite specific. In a funny sort of way, they do give rather clear evidence of the way that the medieval mind worked, i.e., as we frequently remarked, you and I, there is no mathering about all men being equal, not until John Ball comes along. So, for example, in 1337, the sumptuary law said no one was allowed to wear cloth or furs that came from outside England except, of course, for rich people, who could continue to wear exactly what they chose to wear, thank you very much. But peasants, you have to wear what you're told. Actually, in a funny kind of way, the law was quite socially radical. After all, it was done on money rather than social rank, and this meant that rich merchants could also be exempt. All he needed was your 100 quid a year. So yes, Edward III, social reformer. Merchants taking part in court life, merchants wearing posh frocks, social revolution, where will it all end? But finally, of course, with all this bumbling, the key point is that Edward was also taking the chance to develop an indigenous cloth trade. His point was, why are we exporting all this wool to keep the looms of the low countries clacking and their tills tilling when we could do both here in good old Blighty? So grants were made available for Flemish to come over and teach us how to do it. And this policy will over time work. The cloth trade gradually increases and wool exports decline proportionally. However, the biggest motivator for Edward's involvement, of course, is the ability to squeeze money out of the wool trade for the crown. And before long, we'll see various financial measures, which we'll talk about in a minute. So... 
The other big thing about the March 1337 Parliament was that Edward created six new earls. Hands up anyone who can spot a theme amongst the following names. So they were. William Montague, Edward's closest confidant, was created the Earl of Salisbury. William Clinton was created Earl of Huntingdon. William Bohun became Earl of Northampton. Robert Ufford became the Earl of Suffolk. Henry of Gromont, the son of the Earl of Lancaster, became Earl of Derby. And finally, Hugh Audley became the Earl of Gloucester. Anyone spot the theme? Well, for four of these guys, it was the big payback for hanging around in tunnels for the sake of Edward's liberty. And the other two, actually, had been in the vanguard of the anti-Mortimer party, even if they hadn't actually been at Nottingham. And before I move on, Edward III's eldest son, Edward, was also created Duke of Cornwall after the death of Edward III's brother, John of Eltham. So continuing a fine tradition of Cornwall being in royal hands. But did you spot something there? I said the Duke of Cornwall. So for the first time, we now have dukes in England. A momentous occasion, I'm sure you'll agree, with the title of Duke being held for somebody in the royal family. Anyway, why not get to the big moment? We don't need to delay it any longer. In May, Edward headed north with an army to Scotland, where once again the Scots were gathering around Stirling Castle like rats. Edward drove them away, but they'd be back before long. But while he was there on the 24th of May 1337, Philip confiscated the Duchy of Aquitaine. This is a declaration of war as plain as a pike staff. Edward now needed money, that was clear. So let me introduce a chap called William de la Poole, a useful way also of illustrating some features of social mobility in England. William and his brother Richard were merchants from Kingston-on-Hull, which for our non-English listeners is usually just called Hull and is in the northeast of England on the River Humber, a major port and commercial centre. The two brothers made their first pile through the Gascon wine trade, and in the process got themselves an official position as deputies of the king's chief butler. And then it was Richard, probably the elder of the two, who managed to land himself the position of the king's chief butler itself in 1327. During the next few years, Mortimer needed to raise money and his favourite route had been the Italian merchants. But the Bardi had something of a cash flow problem, so William stepped forward and offered a loan of 2,000 quid. And from here on in, finance would be a core part of the Dulapool offer. Both brothers managed to avoid destruction during the fall of Mortimer, but during the 1330s, Richard's trajectory changed. He remained as the king's chief butler, but separated his business from his brothers. And though they clearly remained on good terms, since when he died, Richard named William as an executor of his will. But Richard's son Michael was basically a landowner in Northamptonshire. And so here we have it. Social mobility, the template in England in all its glory and shortcomings. One of England's great strengths in the future will be a social structure that is much more flexible than many continental countries, particularly France. But the model was always for successful businessmen to move into land, because land defined social status. And so they became assimilated, and somehow the industrialist has always ended up being faintly unacceptable. Anyway, we'll follow William's life over the next few decades. But in 1337, after Philip's confiscation, one of Edward's aims was to build his war chest. And together with William, 
they came up with a complicated way of making the wool trade pay. The idea was that William would have a monopoly of wool exports to Brabant. He'd be given the right to seize 30,000 sacks of wool on credit from producers. They'd then sell the wool in Flanders and make a tidy profit. And on the basis of this profit, they were to advance Edward £200,000 so that he could get started. It all turned to poo. Just too complicated, no one was honest enough, and William proved he couldn't resist the chance to milk the opportunity for as much as he could get. So the prices he offered producers were pants, they fought tooth and nail to stop him taking their sacks of wool off him, and there wasn't enough. And then, to cap it all, William smuggled loads of sacks to make even more money. And then, when they got Flanders, the king's agents were all skint, didn't have any money anyway, so they simply seized the first shipments and sold them for themselves. A complete muddle. Edward got far less money than he'd hoped, and Delapool's standing with the king suffered big time. But you don't get to be the country's richest merchant by being a shrinking violet. Over the next few years, Delapool recovered his position by lending money to the king and then exploiting the position without Ruth. In 1339, he insisted on buying the manor of Burstwick from the king, a most profitable and valuable manor. And frankly, Poole was exploiting the king's desperation. And here's a general rule of life, folks. Be careful if you exploit the rich and powerful. They don't like it, which is fine, but generally they also have ways to make you suffer. Poole would be learning this lesson at some point. Edward needed money, because his first approach to the Continental War was the traditional Billy the Conk one. You remember? Assemble a team of allies around France's borders, Brabant, Germany, and squeeze him until the pips squeak. It does kind of make sense in theory, but it's viciously expensive. Actually, you'll equally see a theme here of the evil English funding European walls. Wait until we get to Pitt the Younger. But by the end of 1337, while the French attacked Gascony, Edward assembled a grand alliance on the continent. He negotiated with the Holy Roman Emperor, who duly made him Imperial Vicar General, which gave him full imperial rights in the Low Countries. Vast amounts of money were offered to the Duke of Brabant as well, about 60,000 quid. In the background was the threat that Edward would claim the throne of France, but for the moment, no such claim was made. Sadly, there's no doubt there was a deal of cynicism and reluctance amongst the continental allies. They wanted action, and there was none. And meanwhile, Philip was attacking Gascony with no comeback that they could see. At this point, a first minor victory probably helped move things along. A Hainalter called Walter Manny led a small fleet and raided the village of Cadsant. The village was close by the major port of Sloys, and when the garrison came out to help their villages, Manny slaughtered them. It was a small action, sadly, but maybe helped build a little confidence. By the end of the first year of the Hundred Years' War in 1337, as Edward celebrated Christmas in traditionally luxurious style, his position was actually not in great nick. He had a strategy, but was desperately short of money to launch it. He wanted parliamentary approval. Philip was getting the better of the fight in Gascony. Edward needed to take action and show that he would be a different proposition to his dad. I think that's a good place to leave it for the moment and to tell you something about the summer schedule. 
You will be amused to hear that the work thing has finally caught up with me. I have no advanced episodes in the bank. My back is up against the wall. The wolf is at the door. I'm between a rock and a hard place, and I will need a stitch in time to save nine. Please insert the appropriate aphorism. Fortunately, next week we have a guest episode from Stephen Guerra on the 14th century papacy and the move to Avignon. Thank you, Stephen. I'm sure you'll all enjoy it, everyone. It'll be a humdinger. And then, gentle listeners, I'm away for multiple weeks. So there will be no episode 21st and 28th of July, I am very sorry to say, and indeed not for the 4th of August also, because I will not have time to have one written and recorded when I get back. So, the 11th of August is the next time you'll hear my voice. Then, sadly, there'll be yet another gap on the 17th and 18th of August because, to the disbelief of our US listeners, I have no doubt, I am again away. Ho-hum. So have a wonderful summer, everyone. I have some donators to thank, actually. Lord knows what the christening ceremony was like when this first person was at the font, but my thanks to Datahouse Software for your donation and to Stephen and Larry. My thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group and indeed to all of you for listening. And before I go, I really need to cover off a really rubbish joke I heard a couple of weekends ago when some friends came to stay and we had an argument about the relative merits of loose leaf tea and tea bags. Such is the dangerousness of my life. So here we are. Question. Why did Karl Marx only use tea bags? Answer. Because property is theft. Off, and if you will, off. Good luck, everyone, and have a great summer. Mm-hmm.